Well, good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? <clears throat> Want to uh, apologize. Apparently, our greeters outside this morning informed you that uh, Pastor Paul was not here today and I was preaching. And they said, you might want to get in your car and go home. <clears throat> They'll be replaced by next Sunday. We'll make sure of that. <laughs> today, we're looking at how Jesus dealt with injustice. And to get started, I want to throw out a question for you to ponder and think about. <clears throat> Have you ever experienced injustice in your life? Now, I don't mean that somebody wasn't nice to you or someone cut you off in a parking lot or someone left a snarky comment on your Facebook post. I'm talking about a time where you experienced betrayal. Somebody took something from you. You lost all trust in someone or something. Or perhaps you were accused of something you didn't do and the system failed you. Or someone turned against you and you were rocked to your core, you felt alone, you felt humiliated, maybe even felt a little bit disillusioned. To help set up where we're going this morning, Jessica Guardia is one of our members here at North River. Come on out, Jessica. She's going to share a time in her life where she experienced an injustice. Would you welcome Jessica to, uh, to the stage? Hi. <laughs> Um, thank you, Todd, for asking me to come and share. I'm very thankful. My name is Jessica. My daughters, Kaylin and Haley, and I have been attending North River for about three years. And um, I will start this story by saying that I grew up in a Catholic home. And at a very young age, I knew the power of prayer and faith was instilled in me. Facts, okay? Um, Early in my adolescence, I experienced something in my life that basically left a giant hole where my childlike faith was. And I started to do whatever I could possible to fill that hole, right? To fill it. Lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating, drugs, alcohol, all of it. It was a sad existence that I lived, all right? And it was a painful painful process for my family and loved ones to watch me go through. Graciously, the Lord answered my loved one's prayers, in particular, my mom and my dad. They're the two most loving, caring, faithful people I know. Shout out, mom and dad, if you're watching. I love you. Um, and God rescued me from that life. And for the next over a decade, I spent my time healing and looking at the trauma that caused me to lose that childlike faith, to self-reflect on my behaviors and the parts of my relationships that caused me to go this way when everybody in my life went that way, okay? And um, the most amazing, beautiful thing about it was that I was not alone. I had a ton of people surrounding me within the spiritual community that I had found, right? This spiritual community, okay? And... It was amazing. I, I grew up, I became, you know, um, a productive member of society. I got married. I had a, a child. All along, these people were here next to me, cheering me on, encouraging me. And I was six and a half months pregnant with my second child, my second daughter. And um, I was about 11 years into my relationship, and it was revealed to me that my husband was having an affair, and he was cheating on me 95% of our relationship, and 90% of that spiritual community knew. 
all about it. I'm talking I've walked into social events with women that were sitting there were either sleeping with my husband or had slept with my husband. I mean, these were people that were close to me, like closer to my family. They were aunts and uncles to my oldest daughter, okay? Talk about betrayal. Talk about humiliation. Talk about fear, insecurity, doubt, anger, rage, all of it. I felt it. I wanted to hit this broad with a baseball bat. I'm not kidding. Ask the people that were close to me. I really contemplated it. Um, And I lashed out. I lashed out to all my family. Thank God. Thank God they loved me where I was at. You know what I mean? Because it was really hard to be very pregnant, raising a daughter, trying to figure out how you're going to raise two kids on your own and heal a broken heart. Right? Because naturally, to my parents, they think about the child, my, my babies. And of course... That is the natural thing. But in my brain, I'm like, well, what about me? I'm your baby. Help me. Um, But they love me through it. They let me lash out. That spiritual community, I swore I'd never step foot in there. Forget all of them. Who do you think you are? Who did I think I was? You know what I mean? God set the stage, all right? He, pre- he prepared the people around me to help me get to where I needed to be. I was raising a daughter. She was five. I was pregnant with a second daughter, right? So it came down to the woman that I wanted to be. Did I want to be the chick swinging the baseball bat with her kids watching? Right? Did I want to be the woman that held her head high with dignity and grace. And I continued to go to that spiritual community. I didn't continue to go. God carried me. For when there was one set of footprints in the sand, it was then that I carried you. And I showed my face. But God also, that was preparation for me. That was preparation for me. Just like Judas's betrayal was preparation for Jesus on the cross. Because what it did was it put me in a position where at the end of the day, it was me, my daughters, and God. And God said to me, you are going to get to know my son. And that's how you're going to get the life that you deserve. And so stay tuned, I guess. Um, I pray that I can continue to carry out God's will for me. And I can continue to carry myself with dignity and grace. So, thanks. Raise your hand if you can relate to Jessica's story in some way, either a time where you experienced injustice or maybe just someone you know uh, has experienced it themselves. I'm sure we can all relate. Why? Because life is not fair. When we see or experience injustice, it is a sign that there is something wrong and broken in the world. It raises all kinds of emotions, that anger and that hurt, that sadness, that humiliation. And when we experience the betrayal of injustice, we'll typically respond in one or two ways. First, we want to blame someone. And if we're honest, we often end up blaming God. We ask, why God? How could you let this happen to me? There have been many times where I've sat with someone who's hurt in their life has resulted in a hang-up about God. They will ask, how can I trust or believe in a God 
that allowed this kind of injustice in my life. This kind of questioning reveals the desire of wanting God to step in and intervene, but also the assumption that somehow God is responsible for what happened. The second way we often respond is that we want revenge. We want those who betrayed us to pay, right? And what does the world teach us? An eye for an eye. One of the most misunderstood, misquoted Bible verses in our society today. Or how about this? Stone Cold Steve Austin said, revenge is a dish best served cold. (laughs) In the hurt and anger of betrayal, we believe that we will actually feel better when someone else has suffered more than we have for what they have done to us, right? What if there was a different way to deal with injustice? What if God was not the villain of our injustice, but the victor? What can we learn from Jesus about how he dealt with injustice? This is important to talk about today because it has eternal implications for all of us. Jesus fully understood injustice. He experienced the worst injustice ever inflicted on a human being. Let's look at his story found in Luke 22. If you want to follow along in your Bible, we're in Luke chapter 22, verses 47 to 53. Feel free to follow along on your phone if you have a Bible app or we'll put it up on the screen for you. But here's the story. It says, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we, take out, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. <clears throat> then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you would have come with your swords and your clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Let's unpack a couple things in this story. First, the planned death of Jesus had begun. The religious leaders were fed up with him. They saw him as a threat to their way of life and they wanted him eliminated. So their plan was to arrest Jesus, put him on trial, prove him guilty by whatever means necessary, and ultimately have him crucified. Judas was not just some random person brought into the situation. Judas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Judas handpicked Jesus. Judas, Jesus handpicked Judas. <laughs> Jesus invested more time then uh, most of his time with Judas. For three years, he spent more time with the 12 than anyone else. They shared life at a level that close friends would share together. Jesus prayed for Judas regularly. He had a high level of trust in Judas by making him the treasurer of his ministry. Most importantly, Judas, Jesus loved Judas and he considered him one of his closest friends. The betrayal of Jesus was, of Judas was deep 
and it was even twisted. Judas used one of the greatest signs of affection to turn Jesus over to those that would lead him to his death. You can sense just how deep Jesus felt in his betrayal personally with this question. Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The other disciples saw the injustice and they were ready to step in on Jesus' behalf. Peter, wanting someone to blame and to seek revenge, drew his sword and ended up cutting off someone's ear. But Jesus stops Peter. And in his moment of utter betrayal, Jesus miraculously heals one of the people who are part of their plan to destroy him. What can we learn from Jesus' betrayal this morning that will be helpful for us in our journey? Three things that we can look at. First, Jesus understood his situation from God's perspective. What happened the night of Jesus' arrest was not the full picture. The chief priests were trying to eliminate a problem, but God was preparing Jesus to be the redeemer of the world. The chief priests were focusing on a temporary problem to sustain their power and their control. God was focusing on saving humanity through the sacrifice of his son. See, God was using this situation to fulfill a greater purpose of establishing Jesus as our living hope. God's plan was to work through what was happening on the surface for something much greater and bigger and deeper under the surface. Jesus knew that his death was coming. In Matthew's account of the story, Jesus asked God three times to stop the plan of his death. But God didn't stop it. Why? Did God not care? Did God not love Jesus? Was God someone who took delight in what was about to happen? The truth is, is that it was because God cared for you. Because God loved you. That Jesus would die for the sin of the world and through the resurrection that anyone who believes in Jesus shall not perish, but have eternal life. No one else fit the qualification to take the place of our death for our sin. No one else, uh, while we were praying and while we while paying the penalty for the sin of the world, and while that was agonizing and gruesome and difficult for God to watch. Death did not hold Jesus down. See, the plan of the religious leaders did not, to eliminate Jesus, didn't work. Jesus defeated sin. He defeated injustice. He defeated death. Jesus went through all of that and ended up on the other side victorious. Can you imagine what those who took part in Jesus' death thought when they found out that Jesus was alive on that Sunday? Think about it. If Jesus had not been betrayed, arrested, and tried, and crucified, we would not have the resurrection. You and I would not experience new life in Christ. We would not have the living hope of Jesus. If Jesus was not the savior of the world, 
then the purpose of his death was simply the result of political corruption. But Jesus was handpicked by God to be the one to show unmerited favor and to carry out boundless grace. God stepped down from glory to wear our sin and bear our shame. And Jesus knew and understood that through his, though his death was tra- tragic and grueling, he knew it was an act of service and love for the world. And Jesus submitted to God's authority. All right, so what does that mean for our betrayal and injustice that we may experience? Is God going to use your experience for something bigger? Possibly. It's important that we understand that God's ways are not our ways. God will often use the situations in our life for a greater purpose. And God very well may use your situation to draw others to him. But before he can use us, he needs to get us. And we need to get him. Not get you as in hunt you down, but to get you, to go out and rescue, to save you, to protect you, to get your attention, to get your focus, to get your heart, to get your trust. See, it is in the loneliness and humiliation and the hurt and anger of betrayal and injustice where we realize that we have no one else to turn to but to God. We may find ourselves at a place where we can't dig our way out of the situation. The odds are stacked against us. And it's in that moment that we surrender, we give up control, and we let God take over our life. And when God becomes the leader of our life and we learn to trust that his ways are better than our ways. It's then when our sin and our shame and our hurt and humiliation is is washed away and we're able to experience freedom, forgiveness, joy, and hope. To understand our situation from God's perspective It means that we trust and believe God is greater than the injustice that we are facing. And not just to trust and believe in in theory, like, oh, that's a good idea, God, I'll, I'll try that. It's trusting and believing in practice. Let's move on a little bit and I'll show you what I mean. The second thing we can learn from Jesus is that Jesus surrendered his need for retribution to God. Notice the restraint Jesus had in dealing with the crowd when they came to arrest him. Jesus had some options. He could have pushed back. He could have fought back. Or he could have done something to put them into their place. But Jesus didn't do anything to foil their plan. In Jesus' greatest injustice, he modeled what he taught about revenge and retaliation at the beginning of his ministry. Here's what we read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. 
You have heard it said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Eye for an eye was established to control punishment in the judicial, judicial system in the ancient world. The punishment needed to fit the crime. But more importantly, the punishment was to be administered by those who held the authority to administer justice. Yet over time, eye for an eye had become abused to promote personal retaliation. For example, if somebody was humiliated, then it was believed and practiced that the person should have the right to retaliate and retaliate against the offending person with humiliation. Sounds a little bit like our American politics, huh? <laughs> Jesus in this teaching raised the moral ethic from retaliation to servanthood, which was a kingdom value. Jesus inverted, he flipped upside down the responsibility of the believer who had been wronged from taking back what they lost to giving. In other words, rather than retaliate and seek an opportunity to help the person, um, to, uh, rather than to retaliate, it was an opportunity to help the person to see the kingdom at work in you that they might respond to it. That's what Jesus was teaching here. Jesus used recognizable examples in the ancient world to, to illustrate this. So he talks about the, the strike on the cheek. And the strike on the cheek was less about physical pain and more about the humili humiliation one would experience about having that happen to them. Roman military personnel often did this to demean the dignity and honor of those they had power over. Jesus' teaching to turn the other cheek meant to be so secure in who they were as God's children that they don't need the satisfaction to retaliate. Giving the other cheek was a sign of strength. To turn the other cheek meant to be willing to be humiliated even more by finding a way to put yourself out there with the person in a way that might serve them. Another example that Jesus used was that if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. This was a military scene of that day where civilians were often required to assist the military if asked. Jesus said, don't just fulfill your civic duty by, um, by going the one mile. Be willing to go above and beyond in service. And Jesus used a couple more examples here, but I, I think you get the idea. Let's roll back to the night of Jesus' arrest. His position was not to fight off the crowd or retaliate against what had personally been done to him. Essentially, in this moment, Jesus said, okay, I'll go with you. And we'll go sort this out. 
No need for you to bring in the big guns. I'll go quietly without making a scene. Jesus had two plays here. First, if Jesus went along, he could plead his case, found to be innocent, and perhaps be let go, and everything would be over. If, however, this was the beginning of the planned death of Jesus, then by Jesus going, he was being obedient to God. Jesus was surrendering his need for retribution to God. And he saw this as an opportunity to give and serve by not raising up a rebellion. When we face injustice, one of the ways we operate from is a place of strength. It's to surrender our need for retribution. By doing that, we pave the opportunity to serve and promote kingdom values. Now, this does not mean that we roll over or we play dead or we become someone's punching bag. That's not what we're saying here. What we are saying is that it's an opportunity to defer to God, to his authority and his role in the revenge. Look at what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12. He said, do not pay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking, that this means that we should begin praying for God's retribution on the person who offended you. Oh, Lord, please strike this person with hot oil and then may feathers fall on them. I mean, you know, or may they fall in a ditch walking across the street and get run over. I mean, how you can fill in the blanks, right? We can get as sick and twisted as we want when we're talking about retaliation. But that's not what this means. It means that we, if, it means that we confess to God our anger and need for retribution. It's asking, God, help me find a way to get past what this person's done, to serve them in a way that you might be at work in their life and they may come to know you. Wow. There's strength in that prayer. It's a powerful prayer. When we do that, it will open up our heart wide to opportunities to love and serve those who wronged you. Why? Because you are aligning your heart, you are aligning your attitude, you're aligning your will with God's will. I mean, there's nothing more obedient, intangible way to honor God and to live for God in a moment like that. Now, how did Jesus do that in all the commotion of his arrest that night? Here's the third thing we, lead from, we can learn from Jesus. Despite the betrayal of injustice, Jesus extended radical grace and mercy to his enemies. When Peter started swinging that sword around, he ended up cutting off the ear of one of the men who had come to arrest him, right? Right? 
And while it is so subtle in the text, with everything going on, the text tells us that he touched the man's ear and he healed him. And that reveals Jesus, that revealed Jesus' posture towards his enemies in that moment. This was the final miraculous healing before his death. All the other miracles and healings that were performed by Jesus were on people who were sick, who were dying, who were hurting, who were in need. They were people who came to Jesus for help. But in this healing, it was the healing of one of Jesus' enemies. Again, here is Jesus modeling what he taught at the beginning of his ministry. Here's what it says in Matthew 5. It says, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father and you may be you may be children in your father in heaven he causes the sun to rise on evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous if you love those who love you what reward will you get are not even the tax collectors doing that and if you greet only your own people what are you doing more than others don't even pagans do that Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, it's not enough just to love and serve only those people who are like you or, or who you like. As followers of Jesus, love and service, grace and mercy must be extended to all. And this is a hard teaching because we regularly interact with people every day that we don't like, that we don't trust, who has betrayed our trust or maybe even taken advantage of us. Yet when we love others, we reflect the love that God has shown us. Friends, Jesus chose to extend mercy and grace to the very people who betrayed him, to the man who had cut off his ear, uh, to, who had his ear cut off. He extended grace and mercy. To those who allowed Jesus to become a victim of injustice, he extended grace and mercy. Now let me be brutally honest for a moment. Every one of us, each one of us, every person in the world represents the crowd who allowed the injustice against Jesus that night. What? <laughs> me? How? I wasn't even there. Jesus' death was not some random act of violence. His death was the substitute for our sin, for our penalty, for our death. We are guilty of betraying Jesus with our sin. And while we weren't physically there that night, we were there symbolically because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus freely died for your sin so you wouldn't have to. In effect, in our sin, we are enemies of Jesus. But in his grace and mercy, he extended to us that which makes us children of God. 
We enter a new life in Christ. And with God, when we surrender our life and our will and our sin to God, and we experience new life in him. Here's the big idea for this morning. Jesus deals with the utter betrayal of injustice with radical grace and mercy. Jesus deals with the utter betrayal of, ju- of injustice with radical grace and mercy. Jesus knows how you feel in your betrayal because he was betrayed too. But Jesus knew that in light of eternity, the betrayal would be temporary. And despite the betrayal, there were still people Jesus needed to love. And Jesus drew from the strength of God's love for him to fulfill his mission in the world by loving them despite what they did to him. If we get Jesus, it means that we are called to live like Jesus. If we get Jesus, it means we have to engage our enemies with radical grace and mercy. If we are bothered by injustice in the world, we can do something about it. It's not the people in the world who cause injustice that are the problem. It is our responsibility and our problem to extend love, grace, and mercy to the world. The world doesn't know better. But we as children of God, we do. We may not be able to eradicate injustice completely, but we can certainly help change the course of eternity for people as we love and as we serve him. Friends, this is the mission of North River. It's helping people far from God become fully developed worshipers and servants of Christ. It's us being forever changed by God's love and then going out and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus by the love that God extended to us when we betrayed him in our sin. When you pull out of here this morning, you're gonna get in your car and you're gonna drive down the driveway and you're gonna see our strategy flags going down. And at the bottom, there's one that says, go, spread the love of Jesus to the world. Each one of us is on mission when we walk out of this building to extend the love, to send the love of Jesus to the world. It's an opportunity in in our injustice in the injustice in the world to be an example of hope in Jesus to the, the hope of Jesus in the world the way we deal with injustice and betrayal is to invert it and flip it over and extend radical grace and mercy let's pray together Gracious God, I'm sure there are people here this morning who have been hurt by injustice. And God, I pray you meet them in their darkest hour, that you give them healing. They they trust you. They turn to you. They surrender what has happened in their life so that you might be seen as victorious in their life, as Lord. 
And God, I pray that you would fill each and every one of us with the strength and the power and the ability to extend love and grace, not just to the people that we like, not just the people that do something for us or show us love first, but rather it's the people that we extend love and grace to who have hurt us, who have wronged us, who are enemies. And God, as we do that, we proclaim who you are until you come back. We trust that with you and in you and for you today. And together, God's people said, amen. Hey, before we go, I'd like to uh, share with you one quick staff update and we'll end with our final song. I'm gonna ask if Christiana McGovern can come up. Many of you know Christiana. She is our children's ministry director. And last uh, September, she joined our team as our interim children's ministry director. And for the last eight months, Christiana has done a fantastic job. Really. (laughs) She came in at a time where we needed to provide a little bit of stability. We needed to build some teams and uh, uh, work on some areas. And uh, Christiana came in and, you know, basically said, what can I do to help? And didn't just ask what she can do to help. She challenged us to hire her. I remember uh, in the moment that we were talking and, she, and I said, well, you know, is this, this is your first job and first ministry job? And she's like, yeah. She's like, well, how, she said to me, how old were you when you had your first job? I was like 26. And she's like, well, guess how old I am? 26. <laughs> I was like, touche. <laughs> Christiana has uh, enfolded into the staff She's enfolded and ingrained into the life of the church. And she's no longer our interim children's ministry director. She is our children's ministry director. And she wants to be here for a while. So we want to recognize that. We love you. We're behind you. We want to support you. We realize that you are not the one that's doing all the work. You're equipping us to do the work of children's ministry. So if God is working in your heart and you want to serve and you want to help and you want to make a difference in in the lives of children, come talk to Christiana. She'll be happy to help train you, equip you, and coach you and put you in a role that you will love to serve. Amen? Amen. Amen.